My name is Matt Luloyan. If we've never met before, uh, I'm the pastor of Liberty Church uh, here in Harrisburg. It would be a privilege for me to get to meet you if we've never done that before. So I'd love to, to grab your hand, shake your hand uh, after service today. Uh, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 20. We've been in a series in the Gospel of John, and we're rapidly approaching the, the end of that series. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles under your seat, that's going to start on page 906. So you guys can go ahead and make your way. Make your way there. Um, thank you to all of you who came out yesterday and helped us deliver meals for Easter outreach. Uh, it was a great day. Uh, many people showed up. Uh, we delivered, I think, over 100, about 110 to people's homes. And there was a couple more uh, areas where we actually just got to meet people that didn't even sign up ahead of time and deliver meals to them that needed it. So it was a great day. Uh, if you did go and filled out those follow-up forms because you got to meet and connect with people, make sure you give those to Dave Parton sometime today or next week. Um, part of our heart as we do this is really to, to serve this region well on multiple fronts. Uh, we care for people on one day by giving them a meal, but we also want to connect with them, get them connected to other resources and organizations in the region, follow up with them, invite them to be part of who we are as a church family, uh, really seek to serve the good of the whole region through that. And the meal on, on Easter outreach is really just an, an inroads into so much more. Um, so thank you for, for how you've already participated through giving money and volunteering, would ask you to continue to be involved by praying for the people that we were able to connect with, uh, and if you're interested in actually being part of our follow-up efforts, make sure you let us know that uh, as well. Doubt is not an autonomous activity. Doubt is not an autonomous activity. There's a British missionary, theologian, author named Leslie Newbegin, and he once famously quipped those words, doubt is not an autonomous activity. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that the doubt can't exist by itself. That to doubt something is, by definition, to believe in something else. That's a really insightful and, and helpful paradigm. Because the sooner that we realize that we're all believers in something, the sooner we can get past this silly idea that, that any of us are neutral. You know, we can stop talking about if we're going to believe, and we can start talking about what we're going to believe instead. And as we're in John 20 today, the Apostle John includes a purpose statement for why he's written everything that he's written in his whole gospel. John wants those who read his words in this gospel to believe something. And so we're going to start today by reading actually the end of the chapter first, uh, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll work our way back through the rest of the text. So follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. God, we are here to celebrate Jesus risen from the dead. And as John writes down words so that we might believe I pray that we might believe, and I pray that we might taste and experience the life that is to be found in the name of Jesus. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our ears? Would you break up the hardness of our hearts? Might we receive what you would teach us, what you would have for us this morning? And we pray that in your name. Amen. So John, all authors don't, don't give you such like an explicit purpose statement 
in their writing. John gives us that. He wants the reader to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's this promised and anointed Messiah who has come, and that by believing in him, by believing in his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can have life. We can have life that he has secured for us by his own work. That's what he wants for the original readers who came across this 1900-ish years ago. That's what he wants for us today as the contemporary, contemporary readers. Now, as you're well aware, today's Easter. And that means that somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 billion people in the world are celebrating today with us the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A lot of people in the world believe this. It's a common thing. Two billion people are celebrating this today, believing that Jesus has risen from the dead. But not everybody believes. Uh, Many people in our day, many people in the history of the world, they doubt. They doubt the resurrection. And I I don't want to make any assumptions this morning. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're here this morning and you doubt the resurrection. And if so, you're actually in really good company. Because you know who else doubted the resurrection? was the people who first heard about it, the original followers of Jesus. But their doubt, like all doubt, was not autonomous. Their doubt was because they believed something else. And so it's really fitting that as John is going to invite his readers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, he offers four brief accounts in this chapter of doubt becoming belief. John 20 really includes four vignettes, uh, these little scenes and stories that build to that culmination of that purpose statement that we just read a few moments ago. And these are the four vignettes. There's Peter and John and the uninhabited grave clothes. There's Mary and the gardener who knew her name. There's the disciples and the unanticipated intruder. And then there's Thomas and the body of evidence. And in each of these accounts, I want to look at why these people doubted, you know, what they believed instead, how their doubt became belief, and then what that means for us today, what we can take away from that for for our own lives today. So let's jump in. First, we're going to look at Peter and John and the uninhabited grave clothes. I'm going to read the first ten verses of John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So a quick note on this. When John refers to the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's almost certainly John referring to himself. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to call this a shorthand, the account of Peter and John. Why did Peter and John doubt? If doubt is not an autonomous activity, what did they believe instead? They believed that dead people stay dead. It's not altogether shocking belief. Dead people stay 
dead. It's almost universally shared in the history of the world. People think that dead people stay dead. It actually was the very belief that characterized worldviews in this world in the first century. A uh, New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright points out that the resurrection of Jesus, when it happened, it defied everybody's worldview. Nobody was expecting this. It defied everybody's worldview. So he says this, of, of Greeks and Romans, uh, their worldview, they, they saw the material, physical world as evil. They defined salvation as actually escaping the physical body. The physical body decayed. The world around us decays. So salvation is throw off the stuff that decays and live a purely spiritual existence somewhere else. And if that's your view, then the resurrection of a physical body isn't just impossible or implausible. It's not even desirable. Like, why would you want to, in their view, be enslaved again when you've finally been freed from your body? The Jews, on the other hand, they saw the material and physical world as good. They saw it as part of God's good creation. And many Jews, not all, but many, believed that God was going to bring about a resurrection. It was just that in their view, the resurrection of people was only a small subset of a bigger work of renewal and restoration and resurrection that God was going to bring about in all of his creation. It was part of God swallowing up death forever. No more disease, no more death, no more tears. The perfect reign of God fully experienced forever. So as N.T. Wright says, the ancient world was thus divided into those who said the resurrection couldn't happen, though they might have wanted it to, that would be the Jews, and those who said they didn't want it to happen, knowing that it couldn't happen anyway. That would be the Greeks and the Romans. So this is actually really consistent with what we read in the gospel narratives about the disciples. Jesus predicts his, his resurrection from the dead multiple times, but it never really sets in. They never really grasp that. Probably because as Jews, they didn't really have a category for an individual rising from the dead in the middle of history. For them, that was a misplaced event. It was only going to happen at the end of history, not in the, in the middle. And so when Mary comes to them early that Sunday morning and says, the tomb's empty. There's no rejoicing. There's no, oh, just like he said it was going to happen. There's none of that. Instead, they just go investigate for themselves, and they run to the tomb. How does their doubt become belief? Well, for John, it's the uninhabited grave clothes. It's not just that the tomb is empty. It's that left behind there, in the place where Jesus' body lay, was the strips of linen cloth and the face cloth that had been on his head. And John sees those things there, and it says he believes. He doesn't even understand all of what he's seeing. It says he doesn't even understand that all the fulfillment this was bringing about of all the scriptures. But as he lays his eyes on these uninhabited grave clothes, like one author describes, like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly had emerged, he sees that and he believes Jesus is alive. Why does he believe that? Well, if someone had had moved or stolen the body, they wouldn't leave behind the cloth that he was wrapped in. And they especially wouldn't have taken the time to place it neatly back in the place where his body used to be. It would either be strewn about on the ground haphazardly, or it would not be there at all. But Peter and John, they don't find just the tomb empty. They find something still there. It's the empty grave clothes. And and he believes, John believes. So what is there for us to, to take away from from that particular account. 
For one, we can't rule out the supernatural. Don't rule out the supernatural. Um, you and I today, 21st century Westerners, just like 1st century Jews, Greeks, and Romans, most of us probably believe dead people stay dead. You believe the dead people stay dead? Most of the time? Most of the time. And a vast majority of people in our world who reject the resurrection of Jesus do so because they actually categorically reject anything that could be supernatural. Really what that is, is to conclude your investigation before you really even start it. So I would encourage you, wherever you stand, challenge your your presuppositions. Don't rule out the, the supernatural de facto and dive into the evidence you actually have before you. Don't rule out the supernatural, but also... See the traces of Jesus even when you can't see him. See the traces of Jesus even when you can't see him. John believes before he ever sees Jesus alive. And he does eventually see the resurrected Jesus a couple times. But he first believes simply by laying his eyes on these strips of cloth which were left behind. Many of us doubt Because we can't see Jesus. And of course we don't see him physically. We can't see him physically. But we also doubt because we can't perceive him. And the struggle to believe is really the struggle to perceive. The struggle to perceive the presence and the work of Jesus in our world and our lives. So if you can't see Jesus right now, if you you are in a place where you just can't get to belief because there's some obstacle in the way, then I would... I would submit to you, at least open your eyes to see the traces of Jesus all around you. Traces of his design in creation. Traces of his transformation in the lives of people who do believe. Even when you can't see Jesus, there are traces, and they are like the empty grave clothes that moved John's doubt to belief. Second, second vignette in John chapter 20. Mary and the gardener who knew her name. Picking it up in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary, along with a few other women, they're the first ones to encounter the empty tomb. And Mary brings the news to the disciples, and they all go back to the tomb. After the disciples go home, Mary stays behind, and she's weeping. Her sadness is rooted in doubt. She doesn't believe that Jesus is alive. But remember, doubt is not an autonomous activity. So what does she believe instead? She believes that somebody has moved or stolen the body 
of Jesus. They've taken away my Lord. They've, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. And this has actually always been a, a theory that has seeded doubt about the resurrection of Jesus. That instead of rising from the dead, someone moved or stole the body. Uh, maybe it was thieves. Maybe thieves came and stole it. Maybe the disciples stole it so they could claim that he rose from the dead. That's actually the rumor that the Jewish authorities spread, according to, to Matthew's gospel. Maybe the disciples didn't steal it. Maybe the Roman government moved it, fearing that the disciples would steal it and claim resurrection and put it in some kind of different tomb or different burial place. Okay? We don't have time to, to trace all those different theories out. There's some great resources that do. I would specifically commend to you uh, John Stott's book, Basic Christianity. Um, chapter 4 of that book does a great job kind of tracing the different routes all these different theories could go and suggesting why still the best evidence is that Jesus rose from the dead. The main idea is that after the resurrection of Jesus, the, the church explodes. It goes gangbusters. It spreads like wildfire. And that's a huge problem for everybody else. It's a huge problem for the Jews. It's a huge problem for the Roman Empire. And the whole thing, the whole reason the church explodes is this claim that Jesus is still alive. From everything we know of the disciples, they're not clever or courageous enough to do that based on something they made up themselves. They're just not. And also, anybody else, literally anybody else, could have cut the legs out from Christianity before it even started by simply producing a body, if they just moved it or stolen it. But no one ever produced a body, because they couldn't produce a body. Now, for Mary, it was a whole lot simpler than tracing out all the different theories of what could or could not have happened. How did her doubt become belief? The man that she supposed to be a gardener called her by name. She's so distraught. She's so set in this belief that someone has moved the body that she can actually, in this scene, turn around, see Jesus, hear a question from Jesus, and a dead giveaway question at that. Who are you seeking? It's a dead giveaway question. And still, she doesn't recognize him until he calls her by name. He says, Mary. Mary. And in an instant, her doubt becomes belief. This is not a gardener. Her Lord is not missing somewhere else. He is right here. And he knows who I am. What, what do we take away from, from this? Well, like Mary, we often fail to recognize the voice in the face of Jesus. And I would submit to you this morning that when we doubt, it's not because Jesus isn't there. It's not because we, we can't see him. We might be able to see him, and he is there. But it's because we become so set in a different belief, in a different conviction, that we fail to recognize him when he is right there. So maybe it's the conviction that, that your life is in your own hands. You know, that you have everything you need and can produce by your own energy and effort everything you need for happiness and satisfaction, all that you desire in life. Okay, you and I will fail to recognize Jesus if we're in that place. Maybe it's the conviction, the existential conviction, that we've got to make a purpose and a meaning for our own lives because there's not one outside of what we create ourselves. We will fail to recognize Jesus in that place. But that doesn't mean that he isn't right there calling to you. And this is different from the traces that we see of him in creation or in people around us. This is something that he does within us. Like the pain that you feel when you know and you look around the world and you know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Or the longings that you feel in the depth of your being 
for worth, for significance, to be loved. That is Jesus calling to you by name and inviting you to trade your doubt for belief. God has written eternity on the hearts of humanity, the author of Ecclesiastes says. So may we not be set in such a different perspective, a different conviction or belief that we fail to recognize the face of Jesus, fail to hear his voice, fail to see what he's written on our hearts. The third account, the third scene in John chapter 20 is is of the disciples. And it's about the disciples and the unanticipated intruder. So we pick it up in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So fast forward a little bit. It's it's Easter night. The disciples are gathered together. And even though Mary has seen and believed and told the disciples, even though Peter and John have gone to the tomb, John has believed they've come back and told the disciples, this is a scene characterized by fear and by doubt. But doubt is not an autonomous activity. You're going to have that statement memorized by the time we're done this morning. What are the disciples believing instead of the resurrection? They're believing that theirs is a failed movement. Theirs is a failed movement led by a failed leader who's now dead. Jesus is crucified. He's buried. And anybody who's aligned themselves with him is now about to face the music. So notice here that the disciples, they're anticipating an intruder. They're waiting for somebody to come. It's not hard for them to imagine that the Jewish authorities who just successfully convinced the Roman government to put Jesus to death, aren't coming for them next. It's easy for them to get there in their minds. That's why they're afraid. That's why they're huddled, cowering in a locked room for fear that the Jewish leaders and or Roman soldiers sent by them or with them are on their way. But their doubt becomes belief when instead of the authorities, Jesus comes. Jesus is the unanticipated intruder. And he still comes through the locked door somehow. He still intrudes. It's welcomed. Um, He's the unanticipated intruder. And instead of bringing violence, instead of bringing imprisonment, beatings, perhaps even their own death, what does Jesus bring? He brings peace. He brings peace. And try to put yourself in the shoes of these disciples when Jesus shows up. You have watched the one that you call Lord and God and friend, tortured and crucified and died and buried. And then being convinced that in his own death, you're about to meet your own demise. That everything that you've done and been about, everything you've devoted your life to for the past three years is all come to nothing. And you're just waiting in fear for it to catch up to you. But instead of that, The risen Jesus appears to you, and the first words out of his mouth, peace be with you. Peace be with you. No wonder their doubt became belief. Jesus just did a complete 180 on their perspective and outlook on what was about to happen in their lives. 
is a comfort without comparison. What do we learn from this? What do we take away from the disciples and their account? We learn that we should watch for Jesus in the unanticipated. We should watch for Jesus in the unexpected moments of our lives. Like these disciples who who are fearfully waiting for the Jewish authorities to arrive, there are going to be moments in each of our lives where we are overwhelmed by hopelessness, by fear, by doubt, where we feel like the bottom is about to fall out. Nothing good can come of this. Some of you are there right now. All of us have been, will be, both of those things. It's actually in those very moments that Jesus loves to show up and loves to bring a peace that only he can bring. That's not a guarantee, but it definitely is a pattern. Definitely is a pattern. This is the God of grace and mercy who gives beauty for ashes, who gives the oil of gladness instead of mourning, who gives garments of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. This is the God who the psalmist describes as the one who is near to the brokenhearted and comforts those who are crushed in spirit. This is the God who saves people, not because of the work that they do to to earn the favor of God somehow, but saves them while they're at their worst, while they're immersed in the worst of who they are in their sin. So of course he shows up at the room where they're fearfully hiding, cowering in a corner behind a locked door. Of course he does. It's a perfect picture of salvation. We can't. And Jesus did. He brings peace when we can't accomplish anything on our own. Watch for Jesus in those kinds of moments in your life. He loves to show up when you least expect him, when you least expect peace. The last of these four is about Thomas. Thomas and the body of evidence. Picking it up in verse 24 and reading through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas apparently missed the memo about the initial gathering on Easter night. Have you ever heard of the concept of FOMO? Fear of missing out? Thomas didn't have that prior to this. He has like a FOMO complex after not being there. He's the only disciple that wasn't in the room on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus showed up. It's not the only thing that we know Thomas for, though, is it? What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. It's the reputation everybody wants, right? When you get recorded in Scripture, preserved for 2,000 years. Doubting Thomas. He gets that nickname because of this account. Uh, Even though Mary and the women have seen Jesus and have said, we've seen him. Even though the disciples the week before have seen Jesus and said, hey, we've seen him. 
Thomas doubts. What does he believe instead? Doubt is not an autonomous activity. What's he believe? He believes everybody else is smoking crack. <laughs> he believes everybody else is hallucinating or is just stuck in wishful thinking or they're susceptible to delusions or something like that. But not him. Thomas isn't going to be gullible. He isn't going to fall for that. So he says, unless I see, I will never believe. Of all the people we encounter in John 20, Thomas is the most entrenched in his doubt. And aren't we glad that he was? Aren't we glad that he was? Especially those of us who might share his drive never to take somebody else's word for it, but to investigate for yourself what's true. Thomas's doubt is a gift to a skeptical world. How does Thomas's doubt become belief? Perhaps you, you know the story well. Jesus repeats basically the same exact experience that he did the week prior. It's Sunday night. It's one week later. The disciples are gathered again. The doors are locked again. Jesus appears again. He offers peace. Peace be with you. But instead of just showing his wounds and saying, here, look at my wounds, he says to Thomas, don't just look at them. Touch the wounds. Put your finger in the nail holes in my hand. Put your hand in the spear hole in my side. Here's a question for you. Does Thomas ever touch the wounds of Jesus? Does he actually ever touch the wounds of Jesus? We don't know. We don't know. And don't you just hate that and love that at exactly the same moment? Like, I want to know. I want to know, is, was it that he touched the wounds and it, it like, for once and for, for all, sold him on the fact, okay, this is a, a live body. This is Jesus. I believe now. Or was just the offer from Jesus enough? Was just the offer to touch enough? I hate not knowing. And yet, at the same time, the fact that John doesn't tell us screams out to us as the reader an invitation to investigate for ourselves and to believe. We don't know if Thomas touched the wounds. What we do know is that Thomas believes. He believed. And the one who was the most entrenched in his doubt, refusing to accept on the account of others, now gives the strongest profession and confession of faith in the entire Gospel of John. My Lord and my God. What do we take away from this one? We should examine and then embrace the evidence Jesus is willing to give because he is willing to give a lot of evidence. He doesn't leave Thomas simply to trust the account of another person. But then in this great ironic twist, he sends Thomas out into the world that others have to believe his own account. Thomas won't believe the account of others, but Thomas is going to have to go around the world telling other people to trust his account. And I imagine that every time Thomas saw someone else for the rest of his life trust in the resurrection of Jesus, he rejoiced that they had more faith than he did. The real gift of Thomas's doubt, the doubt of all of these men and women that we encounter in John chapter 20, is that even though we don't get to see Jesus in the flesh, though we aren't invited like Thomas to touch the wounds, we get to hear the eyewitness accounts of those who did and those who were. So be glad that the initial response wasn't this immediate 
unqualified acceptance. The original eyewitnesses doubted. And through their doubt becoming belief, they passed on a beautiful amount of ample evidence, not least of which is the giving up of their own lives, so that those who would not see the risen Jesus might also believe. So friends, do you doubt? Do you doubt? Remember that doubt is not an autonomous activity. And when you doubt and where you doubt, ask yourself what you're believing instead. Like John, may we see the traces of Jesus all around us. Like Mary, may we recognize the one who calls us by name. Like the disciples, may Jesus meet us in the unanticipated, the lowest moments of our lives. And like Thomas, may we examine and embrace the evidence that Jesus offers and proclaim with him in belief, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. These are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. And pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the accounts on that first morning and those days following it when you rose from the dead. Thank you that in the skepticism of the original eyewitnesses, we have an answer for our skepticism. Thank you that doubt becomes belief for these men and women and that their belief spawned more belief all the way to ours today. And I pray, God, that we would that we would challenge our presuppositions, that when we doubt, that we would ask ourselves what we're believing instead, that we would see Jesus, that we don't follow you as some cleverly disguised myth, we don't follow you just as some kind of subjective, make us feel good theory or fantasy. We believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who physically died, physically rose from the dead as our historical fact. We hang our life on you risen from the dead, now reigning at the right hand of God. Would you strengthen us as you plead for us, as you intercede for us at the right hand of God? Meet us in our doubt. Meet us as we come to your table. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.